Is there a more basic need than the need to be changed? When we sort of intuitively just get this, I mean, it's interesting to walk through a bookstore or flip through the pages of Amazon and see really two categories dominate the scenes of the books that are sold. Category is one is the self-help section, which is really just a, a section like, how can you change yourself, right? And there's you can kind of get dizzy seeing the options out there, the different ways of changing yourself, the different routes that are offered. And then there's this other category that's lived largely in reaction to that, but really it's just the flip side of the same coin, which is a whole series or sections of books that are trying to convince you that you are okay just the way that you are. Why is such a, an industry so lucrative? Because we, we no matter what we know, we've we vacillate between these two. How can I change myself? It's not working out. How can I just get comfortable with who I am? Will somebody please tell me that I'm just okay the way I am? And yet the industry is so lucrative because we just intuitively know we're just not right. Something has to change. Something is so at the core of my being, so deeply out of alignment with true life that I need something to fix me. And this is where the kingdom of God comes in. The kingdom of God is about making things new, undoing all that sin has cursed, a new creation. All that sin broke and Jesus has brought the kingdom of God and he's making everything new. He's got a new people who are made new by His Spirit and are living His new life. And so one of the things that sort of plagues us in our own culture, and I mean that by our own city and in the South, is, is the question of how does someone become a Christian? And it's sort of plagued, and there's, there's this word here that's, um, that's uh, born again. It's right, it's become part of our sort of tapestry of religious language, and we're going to circle back around to that. And I think there's a lot of confusion over how someone becomes a Christian, because a Christian at the core isn't someone who's just gotten their acts together, right? A Christian isn't a moral person. A Christian is a new person. And so how does someone become a Christian? But the real deeper question is, what is a Christian? And that should give us some shape. How you answer that question should give us some shape to how does one become a follower of Jesus, enter into his new life, experience his new power. In the context where we live, identifying as a Christian carries some social currency. And so it's really a, a dangerous question to ask. What is a follower of Jesus? As someone who's come into the kingdom of God, a follower of Jesus is a new person who follows Jesus in his new ways because he has their, his new life at work in them. And Jesus is doing something very interesting here in the next two chapters of John's gospel. He's, he's really showing us that there are two false ways of experiencing life. And there are really two very different ways of avoiding Jesus and avoiding his kingdom. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, he's the religious upright leader. And in John chapter 4, we meet a serially adulterous woman at the well. And both are hiding 
from Jesus. Nicodemus comes at at night and he's hiding from social scrutiny. And the woman at the well in John chapter 4, as we'll see in a few weeks, is hiding as well. She's hiding during the day from social scrutiny. Both intuitively know that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. But two have very different ways of addressing the problem. Both have something to lose before they can come to Jesus. Nicodemus has to lose his interaction, has more, in fact, I think, to lose in his interaction with Jesus than the woman at the well, right? The serially adulterous woman who's chosen a a way of, of freedom by license has more, Nicodemus in John 3 has more to lose because he has used his religious resume to build an identity for himself, to cover over that fundamental need to change. And Jesus, here in John chapter 3, is just going to completely destruct that. He's going to completely untangle it. And you see, our tendency is to say the religious leader is the way of kingdom life. That Nicodemus is sort of the is sort of the paradigm for what uh, life in God's kingdom looks like. And Jesus is just going to deconstruct that. Because here's who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus um, is one who uh, is a religious conservative. He's done all of the right things. John introduces us to him. He, in verse 1, he's a Pharisee. And we hear that through the lens of the New Testament. And we hear that as a villain. Right? These are the bad guys. We hear Pharisee. Those are the bad guys. But in the context of first century Israel, they were really the heroes. They were the ones that, that you wanted your children to grow up to be like. They were cultural leaders and highly esteemed because of their diligence and faithfulness. And we're also told that he was a ruler of the Jews, which meant he had political power in the Jewish System. The Jews had a ruling council called the Sanhedrin that had political power and influence over the laws and ways of the Israelites. He was one of them. And lastly, in verse 10, we're told that he's the teacher of Israel, which meant he had studied the Bible and was teaching it to others, most likely in the context of the synagogue setting. Think, here's Nicodemus. He's an elder in the church. He's a political statesman. He teaches Sunday school. He wears a proper suit, maybe seersucker, and a bow tie. And he's spiritually dead because he's spiritually blind. One of the things that we really have to understand before we can grasp the question of how do we change, we have to understand what is fundamentally wrong with us. It's the old adage of war. Know your enemy or the, old, uh, <clears throat> or the old principle of medical diagnosis. You need to know what the disease is before you can treat it. And in this, in this sort of life lesson of Nicodemus, John is introducing us to someone who, say, who we think this is the way of life. And, and John's saying, no, this is the way of death. This man has a more fundamental problem then we, and then it's true of all of us, sort of arguing from the lesser to the greater. If this is true about Nicodemus, it's true about all of us. Nicodemus is a case study on how sin has left us spiritually blind. Jesus says, look, you can't even, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God. We're going to explore this in, in just a second. But I think we need to understand that the gospel, the way of life, the 
the gospel, God's power to change us fundamentally from the inside out, the gospel that brings new life into dead souls, the gospel is fairly simple. It's not all that complex. The youngest child can grasp it. Jesus is enough. I need him. We intuitively, that's all faith is. Jesus, I need Jesus. He's the one. He's enough for me. A little child understands need and sufficiency. A little baby sees that in his mother. I need something. My mom is here. That's all the dynamic of faith is. I need something outside of myself because I can't provide it for myself. Faith is simply entrusting yourself to Jesus, going outside of yourself. I need him. He is enough. That's all the gospel is. Fairly simple to understand. Not all that complex. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is the problem is seldom an issue of understanding when it comes to accessing the life that's in Jesus, but a problem of spiritual blindness. That's what unbelief is. John's painting a very interesting picture with light and darkness in this passage. John tells us that Nicodemus comes at night, there was a man of the Pharisees named, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night. Well, there's a reason for this because Jesus had um, gained some, some notoriety within Jerusalem at this time. He'd already turned over the temple and disrupted it. He's already confronted the religious leaders. He's already shown signs. That's why Nicodemus is up at this point at night. The known figure at the end of chapter 2, we're told that many had already believed in his name. And so Nicodemus shows up in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. It would have cost him some of his capital. It would have cost him a little bit of his reputation. People would have begun to wonder. But there's more going on here just than Nicodemus' motivation. John Get this, has already introduced us to Jesus as the light of the world. His life is the light of the world that gives light to men. And Nicodemus is so blind to Jesus that he thinks of him as a, a peer. He addresses him as rabbi and teacher. He's completely blind to the utter uniqueness of Jesus, whose light as the Son of God is shining in the darkness. Jesus doesn't He's not like an actor on the stage. An actor on the stage has a spotlight shining on him. The light source is, is from outside saying, look, here's the star of the show. Jesus is the light of the world. He is his own light source. He brings his own light to the world. He's the light shining in the darkness. And Nicodemus says to him, hey, you and I are just alike. You, you must be from God too, just like I am, because I've seen you do all these signs. You're probably a little bit better than me, but in the category of great teachers, you and I are, are here together. And this is the problem of blindness. Particularly blindness of religious people, but just spiritual blindness. That we think Jesus is here just to give us a little extra help. This is what sin's done to us. It's left us so spiritually blind that we can't see how utterly in need of Jesus we are. It's left us wondering. It imprisons us. 
I think if you've come from religious backgrounds, you have a tendency, we have a tendency to think of sin as something we do. But if all of a sudden you put that in this other category, sin is a power that oppresses and corrupts and makes us blind to true truth, destroys us from the inside out. And then it's something that we do, but first it's a power that enslaves. And then we've got a category for understanding the utter uniqueness of what someone who has been made new by Jesus is. A new person's following Jesus' new ways. And so John takes us a little bit further down this rabbit hole. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it's printed for you there. You see it in your Bibles. This light and darkness metaphor. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And, and here's God's assessment. Like if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's not that you're just indifferent to Jesus or you don't get him. The light of Jesus has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. If you think you know, Jesus is a nice guy or the Bible's really this kind of sort of placid, easygoing thing that can help you out, you just don't understand how utterly divisive Jesus and his word is. He's just not going to let you live. Any of us live in this good guy category. This is our core problem. Not that we're indifferent to Jesus, but that we hate him. And because our works are evil, we don't want him exposing us. And so Jesus, this is the problem. Sin has so corrupted our sight that we're spiritually blind. Sin has so corrupted our being that we're spiritually dead. And so Jesus' solution to the spiritual blindness as he confronts Nicodemus is this. Truly, verse 3, you have to be made into a new person. This isn't, a, this isn't like Jesus coming along to help you be a better person. This is Jesus saying you've got to be a new person. I have to make you new. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And in this context of the light of the world shining in the darkness and Nicodemus being so blind to Jesus, Jesus says, here's your fundamental problem. You can't see what's true because you've been blinded by the power of sin. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Again, now that language of born again is really churchy language, isn't it? It's become somewhat of a way to differentiate people who are nominal Christians or cultural Christians from born again Christians. And what we mean by that is people who are really serious about their faith. And we need to, we feel this need to differentiate in a culture where cultural benefits come about by just saying that you're a Christian. And to degree, that's helpful language, Right? But that's like saying there are cars, and then there are cars with tires and engines. A car without tire and an engine is just a hunk of metal. It's not, a, it's not an actual car. It has no ability to be powered or move. It dif- it's a differentiation. The difference between a Christian and a born-again Christian is a differentiation that makes it's nonsense. Because it lumps two very different things together as one. And it's one of the reasons, I think, by the way, that I, 
I don't think we need to be, as, as followers of Jesus, I don't think we need to be afraid of the, the cultural change that's just making it more difficult to be a cultural Christian. It's refining. It's taking away some of that baggage so people have to be confronted with whether they really belong to Jesus or not. It's costly to live in his world, in this world, as a follower of Jesus. That's an aside, that's a freebie. You get that one free today. But really what's going on here is this language of born again really misses what Jesus is saying. Most of the time, that phrase, born again, the word that's translated more again, really means from above. So when the temple is torn, the curtain at Jesus' death is torn in two, it's torn from the top to the bottom. It's torn from above. Same word, we're told. And the ESV actually has a footnote here saying that that's an alternate way that it can be translated. And Jesus is saying something similar here, unless you are born from above. Now Nicodemus, he doesn't know what to do with this, and as part of his spiritual blindness is Jesus is saying clear things, and he's just, Nicodemus is just missing the point that he makes all together. This is Jesus' way of saying, look, this is something that God has to do in your life. A sin-cursed person cannot fix themselves because we're spiritually deaf and blind and dumb. And John has really tipped his hand here back in his introduction in chapter 1. If you look at verse 12 and 13, he sort of said, this is where I'm going. Verse 12, John chapter 1, Jesus came to his own. His own people did not receive him. It's John and Jesus and Nicodemus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, or of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hey, this is grace, isn't it? God must remake us into new people. And it's such a drastic change when he does that it feels like I've been born again. The old person has gone. The new person has come. It's so unfathomable when God does this that it's like you were put back into your mother's womb and come back out as a new person. That's what Nicodemus is like. How can this be? How can this ever possibly happen? This is completely implausible. This is completely impossible. We often call this work of God regeneration from Titus chapter 3. That means, look, this is what happens when Jesus enters your life. You are made into a new person. That's what he means here in this reference to, in John chapter 3 to the water. You must be born of the water and the spirit. It's most likely a reference to Ezekiel 36. It could be a reference to the water of the original birth and the new birth of the spirit. I think it's more likely a reference to Ezekiel 36. It was read for us earlier that God promises to clean us from the inside out. And the context of Ezekiel 36 is to give a new heart to free us from our idols. To give us a new heart that makes God the center of our being. You're my only hope, Jesus. That's the mark of someone who's been born from above. Jesus, you're my only hope. So let me 
put together four maybe reflections or thoughts on this or some things to put into your thinking about the work of God and, and regeneration or making new people. First, because regeneration is the Spirit's work, it can't be controlled or manipulated. John 3, Jesus says this, You must be born of water and the Spirit, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And the, and the Greek for wind is the same as Spirit, both in Hebrew and Greek. It's the same word. And so it's a play on words here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that's born of the Spirit is spirit. And that when the wind blows, it's the same word. And he's sort of intermixing these together. It's his way of saying God gives new life by his spirit, but the spirit can't be manipulated or controlled because he is God. He blows where he wishes. He does what he wants. There's no method to making this work. There's no secret trick to unlocking the spirit's work, either in making new Christians or in experiencing his power in your life afresh and anew. He blows where he wishes. And that can be deeply discouraging. But I think it's because it challenges us at the core of our being. Because the question that we often want to ask, what am I supposed to do? How can I make this happen? And Jesus' point here is not only that this is a work of God, But because it's a work of God, it's a work of His grace. He gives the Spirit freely to all who ask. But you can't make it happen. You can't be manipulated and controlled because the message of Jesus is not that you need to be free to be yourself. We need to be freed from ourselves. So when the Spirit works, He works on His own initiative. And likewise, when the Spirit works, it'll be like the wind. You don't always notice the wind's blowing at the moment. Sort of a mysterious hiddenness to how the wind... You just begin to notice the cool breeze on your face or the leaves rustling in the wind. And often that's the case with the Spirit. You don't see where He's come from or where He is going next but you do notice some obvious signs of where the Spirit has been blowing through people's lives and blowing through His church and blowing through communities. You'll notice it after the fact, but the leaves that rustle on the trees are always conviction of sin that leads to Jesus. I need you, and you're enough. And it's always a process that produces hope, but it is a process. Notice that Jesus is saying that regeneration precedes faith, that you must be born again before you can see the kingdom of God. You must be set free from spiritual blindness before you can come to faith in Jesus. And that process is hidden from our eyes, but it 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 should be producing hope that there's no room for cynicism in God's kingdom amongst God's new people. How many times have you said, oh, that person will never follow Jesus? 
I can't, my, my, na- that, my neighbor is so opposed to Jesus that he'll never come to Jesus. Or you think, worse, maybe, that person is such a morally good, upright person. They're so close to the kingdom. That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works at all. There's no, there's no room for cynicism in God's kingdom. And there's no need to identify that person's close or that person's far. The Spirit blows where He wishes. And where He blows, He gives sight to see the beauty of Jesus. And He does this through God's Word. James 1.18, of His own will, He brought us forth. That's new birth language, isn't it? Of his own will, he brought us forth. This is God's initiative to make people followers of Jesus. His own will, he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth. What's the result? That we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's new creation language. Now, that should also give us another kind of hope. It should give us the kind of hope that says, look, I I don't need to be sufficient. Because the Spirit and the Word are sufficient. I don't have to be an expert. Because it's not expertise that brings Jesus people to Jesus. I don't have to be a master evangelist or a master debater. Because it's not primarily arguments that show the beauty of Jesus. It is the Spirit giving new eyes to see. And God, by His will, brings that forth through the Word of truth. If you want to see your friends and neighbors come to Jesus, just... Bring them here and put them in the way of God's recreating word and he'll make new people out of them. How many of you, how many of you were brought to faith in Jesus at the most unexpected time? You weren't, you didn't go looking for him. He came after you. And you see, this is one of the marks of the Christian. There is a love for God's word. It's one of the first signs that God has given you new life. I love his word because you see the kingdom of God in his word and his word brings you joy and hope and comfort. Sort of awakens you. Third, you can tell that someone has been born again, regenerated, come to new life and there are signs of health in them. And Jesus really transitions this. It's at the end of verse 14 and 15, as, as John often does, he begins to loop in all these Old Testament concepts in his word, in his gospel. Word and water and spirit from Ezekiel 13. Now he takes us to Numbers chapter 21 in chapter in verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's what was going on. The Lord disciplined Israel with venomous serpents and they start dying. So Moses cries out on their behalf, God healed them. And so God says to him, look, here's what we'll do. You're going to take the object. You're going to take a sign of the curse. You're going to put it on a pole, lift it up. And when people are bit by the curse of snakes, they'll look on that and they'll be healed. So that the object of God's curse becomes the pathway to healing. And you see, this is what happens for the new person. The person who's been made new by Jesus. This is what he's saying. This is what happens. When I go to the cross, I will be cursed for your sin. 
God will pour out his wrath on me. I'll be your substitute and die. Now look on me and you'll be healed. The object of the curse will become the pathway to healing. And that's what the new person sees. The person who's been given spiritual eyes to see, sees, I need Jesus. And I need him to be cursed for my sin so that I can be healed from my sin. And the son becomes like a snake on a pole, hung on the cross under the wrath of God. So by looking on him, we can have eternal life. Verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Repeat it again in 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son who should ever believe, not perish, but have eternal life. Look, eternal life is not a statement of quantity, but of quality. In other words, it's not a, you get a really long life. That does, you do get that by believing in Jesus. But it's a statement of quality, the quality of eternal life, the quality that comes, a life that comes from God, who is life, comes into our lives and makes all things new, which lastly, for the born-again person, makes new affections that create the struggle that is the Christian life. If sin doesn't bother you, you are not born from above. And a born-from-above person will experience the misery of conviction of sin. That's the death of Jesus being applied to your life. It's the pathway to life. It's death, first cross, then the crown. First death, then resurrection. And the person who has had their spiritual blindness removed begins to see just, there is a lot of gross stuff in my own heart. I love Robert Murray McShane who would say, I find the root of all kinds of evil in me. The morning in person is like, I, I could do that. I could see myself doing that. I love Wilhelmus Elbrockel, the <clears throat> Dutch theologian of the 19th century. It says this about the person who's had the spirit give new life. Spiritual blindness removed. It says, whatever he or she previous delighted in, he now hates. Whatever he hated before, he now delights in. It's a fundamental reorientation of life. Now all of this love and all of this desire are now focused upon God, Christ, the godly, purity of heart, self-denial, humility, meekness, uprightness, the manifestation of God's image and a life unto God's glory. That's where the struggle comes in. I want those things because Jesus wants those things and he's made me like him. Fundamental change. Now I see the sin that remains in me and they are in conflict. I want those things. But I also find I want these things too and the sort of the progress of the Christian life is that struggle just intensifies. And the Spirit gets victory. If you're not struggling in that way, it's because you're still spiritually blind. If you've not found a new affection in your heart for God and His glory, it's because you're still spiritually dead. And here's my plea with you. Beg God. Make me into a new person. Give me your heart. Make me like Jesus. I don't want to be this way anymore because God rewards those who seek after him.
And behind that, if you're feeling those things and that hits on your heart, no. You're feeling those things and it hits on your heart because God is opening your eyes to see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I would ask that you would, for some here, for our children, for our students, for some maybe who have been sitting in these pews for years, we, we need you to open eyes. And for those of us who've had our eyes open to the sufficiency of Jesus and our utter need for him, help us, help us not let our eyes, don't let our eyes grow dim to these things. Just sharpen our vision even more. We need you. We need you more and more every moment of every day. Thank you for being a God who makes all things new in Christ. For in his name we pray, amen.